Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. I hate flying. That was the phrase that occurred to me last week as Kelsey and I had just gone through security at Gerald R. Ford International Airport. A pleasant enough airport, it's a small airport, it's not nearly as big of a hassle as Atlanta or LAX, other airports that I have been through. But I was standing there while she was going through the line at the Starbucks to get us our necessary fuel. It was a very early morning flight. And we had just gone through security and I just thought to myself, I hate flying. And then I thought to myself, what a ridiculous statement that is. Of course I don't hate flying. The miracle of sitting in a chair in the sky and I hate it. Then we got on the plane, and this was, again, an early morning flight southbound, and I was on the left-hand side of the aircraft and got treated to a two-hour witnessing of the sunrise over the ocean, towering majestic clouds. I did not know clouds could be so many different shapes and colors as the sun continued to rise in this cascade of color that I was treated to, and I thought to myself, what a fool I was to say I hate flying. Of course, we love to fly. It's been humanity's dream for a long time. The best superpower ever is the superpower of flight. We've been trying for centuries, and finally, over the last hundred years, we've conquered the skies. We've been able to participate in the miracle of human flight. And I am old enough to remember when flying was fun. I'm old enough to remember a time when as a kid in the 80s, on an international flight on TWA, an airline that doesn't exist anymore, we didn't even go through a metal detector, I don't think. We might have, but it certainly wasn't any big obstacle. You didn't take your shoes and your belt off. You weren't subjected to some sort of ridiculous posture as you went through whatever the thing was that's this phone booth. You didn't have to take every single item out of your pockets and backpacks and then try to repackage everything in public. So humiliating. You just walked through a metal detector, and anyone that wanted to could come to the airport to see you off and stand in front of the big windows and wave at you as you were on the plane. And then once you were on the plane, if you were a kid, my goodness, this was so cool. Kids, I'm so sorry that you don't get to experience this. The the fastened seatbelt sign, when it went off, was actually serious. They kind of encouraged you, get up, move around the cabin. Now it's like if you absolutely have to, you can get up and go right to the bathroom and right back. And I swear the aisles were bigger. It's not just because I was smaller. And the flights were never crowded. I remember being able to stretch out on the five middle seats on those international flights because not everybody was on the plane. And then we'd walk up to the cockpit and the door was open and we'd chat with the captain and he'd give us little TWA wings. It was fun. 
And we all know what the last 20, 30 years has done to airport and airline security, all these necessary measures to keep us safe, to say nothing of the fact that now we have to wear masks on the planes and it's that much less comfortable. They really weren't feeding you much anyway. Now they're really not giving you anything to eat or drink. I don't hate flying. I hate all of the measures and the protocols and the rules that attend to the miracle of human flight, but I love flying. And I had to be reminded of that this week. And I think there is a comparison to be made. Joy is our theme this morning. I enjoyed the experience of flying. Everything that attended to it was miserable, but I enjoyed the experience of flying. And I think when it comes to spirituality, to the things of God, I think many people would say, I hate all of that. But I think what they really mean, and I think if we're honest, what we really mean is that we know that there's a lot of things that have accumulated to spirituality that put up obstacles to the pure delight of experiencing the reality of who God is. The song that we sang at the beginning, open up the heavens. We want to see you. We want to fly. We want to behold the majesty and the mystery and the beauty and the goodness of God and all that God is. But we know, and I think many people who would not identify themselves as part of our tradition would say, it just seems like airport security has gotten overboard with this God thing. In our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians or First Chronicles, I always have to make that, they sound too similar. Very different books. First Chronicles 13 through 16 tells the story of David reinstituting a core part of Israel's religious life. And joy comes up throughout it. And I was really struck by some of the aspects of this story. And so joy is our theme this morning. My hope this morning is that if you came in here with a joy deficit, you will leave with a surplus of joy. Because I believe that that is God's desire and heart for us. So there's five things that I want to talk about related to joy from this passage. And the first is that joy is real. That may sound like an odd way of phrasing things. But it occurred to me this week that as I thought about what my impressions of joy were, that it was focused on kind of like being a state of mind, being some sort of inner spiritual reality and an abstract idea, but that in, the, in this passage and indeed throughout Scripture, joy is something concrete. Joy is something experienced with the five senses. Joy has a taste and a smell and a touch and a sight and above all, in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, it has a sound. Joy is a part of the real world. It is related to our lived experience in the real world. It's not just something that we internally sort of work at and obtain a state of mind. It's rooted in real circumstances. And I think sometimes we imagine that as people who are supposed to be joyful, that our worship, the activity that we engage in here on Sunday morning or elsewhere, is supposed to produce joy. And one of the first things that I noticed about this passage is that joy precedes worship. Joy produces worship, not the other way around, at least in this passage. And it's because the joy is rooted in the circumstances that God's people are experiencing. 
the work that God has done in making David king. So at the very end of 1 Chronicles 12, the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, where David has been made king, there is this statement that the people were doing some things for there was joy in Israel. There was already joy in Israel before David takes the steps of instituting this public worship that we're going to be looking at over the course of these three or four chapters. There was already joy in Israel because God had kept the promise that had been made to make David king and to unite Israel under the reign of King David. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that all Israel had participated in this and the last thing that they do when everything's been done, you've got your king on his throne with his crown, you've got the capital city situated and built up and secured and you've got a people that are united. The verses prior to verse 40, take a look at these if you've got your Bible. Verse 39, all of these people were there with David for three days eating and drinking. For their brothers and sisters had made preparation for them and also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, that's the land of Galilee for us New Testament folks, came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. There's a couple of things that I want us to notice there. First of all, the gathering of God's people for this celebration is a result of the joy that is already present because of what God has done in installing David as king. And for us as the people who recognize that God has installed his king on Zion, his holy hill, Jesus, who is enthroned in heaven, we have the same cause for joy. And what did the people do? They did not each individually go away to private spaces and cultivate an inner heart attitude of joy. No, they gathered together in a large, boisterous, noisy group with lots of food and drink. And this is not foreign or alien to the people of God. When in the books of Moses, Moses gives instructions for the public worship of Israel, over and over again it says, when you come and rejoice before the Lord your God... There is then mention of food and drink being brought. In other words, when God wants us to celebrate and to worship over and over and over again, including into the New Testament, it is around a celebratory meal. Church in the New Testament, church in the Old Testament, far more resembled a lively family party than it did a religious exercise. Does that make sense? The people of God, when they respond to the joy that God has brought about, throw parties with abundant food and joy because there was joy in Israel. Joy is real. It is given real expression in physical, tangible ways. So it's got a taste and a smell. Can you imagine all of that food brought together in this huge gathering? But it also, as I mentioned, had a sound. And so David, in response to what God has done in making David king, proceeds to bring the ark, which had been lost, been captured by the Philistines, and then restored to Israel, but it was off in a distant village. It was not at the heart of where the tabernacle was, of where God's people would worship on a regular basis for their festivals. And David says, I want to bring it back. I want to bring it to my new capital. I want to house the ark, the thing that embodies the presence of God in our midst 
at the heart of my kingdom. And when he does this, he does it in physical, tangible ways. First Chronicles 13, 8 describes it this way. All David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. This is the fullest list of ancient instruments that we have in Scripture. They brought it all to bear. It's so interesting to me that in my lifetime there have been vigorous discussions among the people of God about which instruments are appropriate for worship and what style is appropriate for worship. And at least in the ancient world of Israel, and I don't see any reason why it doesn't still apply here, all of them are appropriate. We have all of the various sections accounted for here. But the other thing that's very interesting to me is that word celebrating. That word celebrating in Hebrew more literally means playing. And I thought about this. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about what musicians do with their instruments, we don't say that they work their instruments? Although that would be perfectly appropriate. They're working at their instruments. What, what do we say that musicians do? They play them. <laughs> it's playful. It's related to the Hebrew word for laughter that Isaac's name comes from. This is lighthearted and jovial. It's how, when was the last time you thought of worship as playful? But there it is. They were literally playing before God and not half-heartedly. They were all in. They played hard with all their might, with songs and all of these musical instruments. And then in chapter 15, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly. Crank it up, Israel! on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. There's a forcefulness to that verb. Make it loud, raise it up, raise the roof, Israel, with all of the variety of instruments available to you. Numerous places in this passage, there are references to the kinds of instruments and voices and music that would be played. Something that gets a little bit hidden, and I just want to mention it in passing because the Levites get a lot of attention. It's obvious that women were participating. Some of these instruments were unique to women. The tambourine especially, a hand drum that women would play. And also one of the vocal groups seems to be a higher register than your average male voice can attain Women were part of the choirs of Israel as well. In other words, a variety of voices and sounds were brought in. It wasn't just one kind of thing. And I think in our discussion of what is appropriate for worship, a wide variety of styles, not just one kind of thing. But joy is real. It has real expression. It's extravagant. It's loud. It's boisterous. And I know, particularly speaking to my own Northern European ancestry that many of us share, this sounds a little bit out of our comfort zone. I remember a church that I grew up in, there was a family that joined us, and the dad especially, they were all of that Northern European persuasion, uh, and the dad especially, it was all we could do to muster him to even sing along with the songs in worship in a Sunday morning service. 
And then in 2002, the Angels went to the World Series, and he was an Angels fan, and he attended one of the playoff games uh, that resulted in a dramatic comeback. I forget exactly which game, but I remember distinctly the front page of the Orange County Register sports section the next day had a full-size picture of him in the stands in a posture none of us had ever seen him before, with his mouth wider open than we had ever seen it, clearly enthusiastic about what was happening on the field of play in front of him, and we said, who is this? And why is it possible for him to get that excited about the angels, which, of course, I shared his passion, and it doesn't come out in church? And this is the second thing that I want to suggest from this passage, is that joy is a group effort. I think Part of his enthusiasm had to do with the fact that he was surrounded by 45,000 people who were all doing exactly the same thing. I'm not one that tends to get super excited individually and and demonstrate that, but you put me in a crowd of people who are singing, and I come out of my shell. Joy is a group effort. And so when David wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem, first five verses of chapter 13, repeat these phrases, all the assembly of Israel, all the assembly agreed to do it, all the people are in on it. Verse five, David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Libo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. All the assembly of Israel, all the people, get everybody in a room. When we were worshiping live stream, I felt awkward and silly, and I don't know about the rest of you, but when every one of us was worshiping at home with pre-recorded things, I, I didn't sing along. Sorry, Garth, I didn't sing along because it felt weird by myself, even just with my family, to sing in my home. But here I don't feel that inhibition. I don't know about the rest of you. It's a group effort. It takes all of us And there is something about the assembled people of God raising together a joyful noise. And this is why it is such a blessing to be able to be back together. The sermon can be appreciated and heard privately, individually. I don't think a whole lot is lost if you're not here for this part of the service. But you are missing something if you are not able to be here for the music. Because we hear one another and we, we cannot help, at least I cannot help, but sing more fully and loudly and enthusiastically when singing along with all of my brothers and sisters, when all the assembly is brought together. Joy is a group effort. Now, we've talked about the fact that there's a variety of instruments and a variety of voices, and, and, and this is a big group that's being talked about. And this means that there needs to be some organization, or it could just be chaos, right? You get more than two or three people together talking about music, there's liable to be some disagreements. And so the third thing that I want to tell us about joy is that joy is a disciplined decision. Everything that happens in these passages is not accidental. It is done on purpose. It is done for a purpose, There's order and organization that comes about. And I think part of this is important for us to think about. At any given moment, as we look at the circumstances of our lives, it is easy enough to take note of the challenging things, of the difficult things, of the things that threaten to discourage us. 
Those are the easy things to find. Our minds are, are drawn to those things. Joy is a choice. Joy is a decision that we have to make. And that becomes clear because David has to command these things to be brought about. And so we see this in a number of ways. In 1 Chronicles 15, 22, we read of Hananiah, the leader of the Levites in music, that David said he should direct the music for he understood it. Do not underestimate the importance of having someone leading us in music that understands the music. Because what could just be a noise needs to be a joyful noise, a joyful sound. I had a friend uh, that I grew up going to church with who was fond of talking about the joyful noise that we are commanded to raise because he didn't have the best voice in the world. And so he's really grateful that it's just required to be a noise. But if all of us just come and sing a noise, it won't produce joy. Someone capable of understanding the music is to direct it. It's not chaotic. Paul in Corinthians talks about this, that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And so our worship should mimic that. But then also in chapter 16, verse 6, we read of Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests who were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Regularly. Whether this was on a daily basis, morning and evening, these are the silver trumpets. The blast would sound out over the hills of Jerusalem from the place of worship to remind people that God was in their midst and they had cause for rejoicing. Brass instruments in particular are joyous. Marching bands are filled with brass instruments, right? If you watched any college football yesterday, there's a reason that college bands have so many brass instruments. It raises the joy. But we have to be deliberate to choose joy. There is a discipline to bring ourselves repeatedly together to remind ourselves of the reasons we have to rejoice because the reasons to be discouraged are legion and they are all around us. But we have much to rejoice over that we must be reminded of. And so in verse 4 of 1 Chronicles 16, David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of Yahweh to invoke, to thank, and to praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. These people were assigned the responsibility of continually and regularly doing these three things before God. To invoke Yahweh is to remember, is to call to remembrance all that God has done, all that God is. That God is the God who is a covenant-making God, a covenant-keeping God, that God has blessed Israel and is determined to continue to bless Israel always and forever. That God is the God who redeemed and rescued and delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the good land that God had promised to their ancestors and that God's purposes for them would never fail, to call to remembrance, to invoke God. And then, of course, to give thanks. If we remember all of God's goodness, then we give thanks. And joy springs from gratitude. It is difficult to be joyful if we have nothing for which to give thanks. And we all know that as the people of God, we have much for which to give thanks to God. And so to thank Yahweh for all that he has done for the people of Israel. And then to praise Yahweh, to raise those sounds of joy. 
This is a discipline. So David appoints people who are responsible for reminding Israel, calling to remembrance, thanking God, and raising sounds of joyous praise before the God of Israel. Joy is a deliberate choice. Now, in saying that, I want to caution against something because we tend to be command happy, right? And so we all know that rejoicing is something we are commanded to do. And if that sounds odd to you, I hope it sounds odd to you. I think we get very comfortable, for those of us who have been raised within the Christian tradition, within the church, that maybe doesn't sound so odd. But think about this, being told you have to be joyful. I don't know about you, but being told I have to do something usually does not produce much joy within me. In fact, it's likely to produce a bit of a burden of guilt to say, oh, I'm not feeling very joyful, and now I have guilt on top of not being joyful. I talked about this several weeks ago, that I've I've begun to rethink the way that those passages that command us to not worry, to not be afraid, to be joyful, need to be understood. That they are not commands to be obeyed. They are assurances. They are the words of a parent to their child, reminding them, you don't have any reason to be afraid. I've got you. You don't have any reason to be worried. I've got you. Rejoice because of all the good things that I've done for you and that I've given to you. Remember all that you have. It's not a command of have to. It's a reminder that we get to. That, of course, the natural state for people who have been loved so well by a God who is so good can only ever be joy. And I say that because any number of us know the reality that joy is a difficult choice at times. The profound sadness and discouragement are realities within ourselves. And what strikes me about the worship of Israel is that their joy makes room for lament. Read the Psalms. We've read some Psalms that summon us to joy this morning. But there is another side of the Psalms, equal in number, that are very honest about the circumstances of our lives. So when I said that joy was real, part of what I meant to say there is that joy is not something where we distance ourselves from our reality and sort of put on a happy face. Oftentimes, I think that's what comes across when Christians talk about joy, is that we sort of just separate the emotions we feel related to negative circumstances in our lives, and we just kind of put on a happy face, and that is not Christian joy. When I say that joy is a choice, that is not what I am encouraging us to do. What I'm encouraging us to do is to embrace the fullness of God's goodness and say, I can be honest and lament and even following the example of Job, complain to God. But the very fact that I bring my lament and my complaint to God is rooted in the reality that I know that I know that God is a God who cares deeply about my pain and suffering and sadness and draws close to the brokenhearted and the oppressed. Because the biggest reason we have to rejoice in God is that God is present among us. Our circumstances may shift and change and come and go, but God is with us no matter what. And that is what the ark coming back to Israel signifies. The ark was meant to embody, to symbolize God's presence with the people. And David wants to bring it back to the center of his kingdom. And so that's what he is 
doing is reminding the people God is with us. That is our biggest reason for joy. The fourth thing that I want to tell us, though, is that joy can be lost. So there's an element of this story that I haven't touched on yet. David purposes upon being made king to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And so they put the ark on a cart. And they begin to haul it. And there's much celebrating and dancing and all the rest. And the oxen are pulling the cart. And in 1 Chronicles 13, 9 through 13, you can read the narrative, and it may be familiar to you. The oxen stumble. They trip somehow. And the cart becomes unsteady along the way, and the ark slides to the edge of the cart. And a man named Uzzah, one of the Levites assigned to attend to the ark, reaches out his hand to steady the ark, to stop it from sliding off the cart into the mud. And no sooner has he touched the ark than he dies. The text says that God broke out against him. The text says that David was afraid and angry. And that the ark didn't come to Jerusalem that day. This is one of those stories when I say that we are not afraid to look at the hard places of Scripture. This is one of those hard places. Because the picture that it presents of God is that God's really kind of uptight about his things. Don't touch my stuff or else. I do not think that that is a faithful or accurate picture of who God is. I think there is something else going on here. This is a story that is told twice, once in Samuel and once here in Chronicles. And like many things, the Chronicler deals with it a little bit differently. David responds to this event, as I said, with fear and anger. And then later decides to try again to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And in verse 13 of chapter 15, here's David's rationale for how he's going to do this and what happened the first time. He says, because you, the Levites, did not carry it the first time, Yahweh our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. David says, I know the problem. The problem was we used a cart instead of the poles that were to be placed on the shoulders of the Levites carrying the ark between four of them. We didn't do it right, and God got angry, and Uzzah died. That's what went wrong, David says. I think David's wrong. In fact, I know David is wrong because of what is said in verses 25 and 26 of the same chapter. So David went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing and because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Only the chronicler tells us this. There's something significant that we need to pay attention to, which is that for the audience that the chronicler is writing to, the Ark was gone. It had been destroyed or lost, and it's not uh, in Tanis waiting for Indiana Jones to find it. It is gone and lost forever, and it is not coming back. 
this thing that was meant to represent the presence of God in Israel, that the chronicler is telling this story about bringing it back to Jerusalem, the audience of this story would have felt keenly aware of the fact that they don't have it. Can they rejoice? Like, this could be a painful story to hear. Yes, our ancestors had rejoicing and loud music and parties and everything, and the ark was coming back to Jerusalem, and what do we got? We don't have it. God helped the Levites carry the ark. I think that what was wrong the first time was not that David was, did, did the ark carrying the wrong way. I think it's that he imagined that the ark was something for them to carry. We talk a lot about we shouldn't put God in a box. Well, we certainly shouldn't put God in a box and then think that it's our job to carry God. The very heart of all religion, and this is where airport security becomes part of the metaphor, the very heart of religion is to say there is something that God needs us to do for him. God needs us to carry him. God needs us to feed him. God needs us to serve him. The very heart of the message of Yahweh, the one and only God of the universe, is that God carries us. It is so easy for us to get this backwards. And we're really good at building boxes and establishing rules for the right way to do things. And I think what God is saying is that if you try to carry me, if you try to carry the weight of divinity on your own, it will crush you. It's not God angry that Uzzah touched his stuff. Uzzah tried to do something that Uzzah had no business and no ability to do. What did Jesus say about the religious leaders of his day? You tie up heavy burdens on people's backs and refuse to lift a finger to help them. And they are crushed down. But come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because I am the one carrying it for you. And so they sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams, recognizing that God is carrying them, not the other way around. Our habits and practices, this is the other side of joy being a disciplined decision. Do not mistake the discipline for the joy. The habits and the practices and the disciplines are not the joy. They are not the real thing. We so often lose sight of that. So joy can be lost. But joy can also be stolen. There's an aspect of this story that I'd never paid attention to. So Uzzah dies and David gets angry and afraid. He's angry at God and he's afraid of God. And he says, how can the ark come to me? And from the last verse of chapter 13 to the end of chapter 14, the story takes a detour. All of a sudden, we're not talking about the ark. Last verse of chapter 13 says that the house that was literally like Obed-Edom's front yard is where Uzzah died, is essentially the sort of picture that we get. And so the ark's got to go somewhere. It's not going to Jerusalem. Uh, Obed-Edom is going to stay at your house for a while. This thing that just killed a man is going to come live with you. It's going to come live at your house for a little while. And the text says that Obed-Edom's house was blessed for the next three months while the ark stayed there. But then chapter 14 proceeds to chronicle all of the ways in which God blessed David's socks off. You see, David looked at what happened with Uzzah 
and imagine that God was angry at him. And he was angry at God, and he was scared of God. He said, I don't want God anywhere near me. Stay over there. This was a mistake. It's too dangerous. And he imagines that God must be angry at him. But God continues to give him victory over his enemies. Favor with foreign rulers who send him lavish gifts of materials to build a palace and a, and a temple for the ark, which David will eventually make preparations for. God blesses David anyway. Fear and anger will steal our joy. David imagined that for this transgression concerning how we carried a box, God didn't want to bless him. God demonstrates in real and tangible ways that that's not true. The Ark of the Covenant of God was the symbol of God's presence, and it was a symbol specifically of God's throne, the place where God ruled from. But the top of the box that had these cherubim, these mythic creatures that were thought to be the ones that carried God's throne, that lid, that top of the box is called the mercy seat. See, David should have known that God's presence is not a presence of judgment and condemnation and wrath. God's presence is a presence of mercy. God is not a God who is uptight about his things like some overwrought parent saying, don't touch that. God is a God who is determined to bless us no matter what. And when David realizes that, he says, we need to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And he thinks that maybe he'll do it right this time and that'll make the difference. And then he finds out, no, God's the one carrying this thing. God is carrying us. And so there was much joy in Israel. The look and the nature, the rules, the policies, the protocols that we might erect can become the equivalent of airport security that robs us of the joy of flying in the presence of the divine. It is vital that we retain the joy and not let those forms cause our joy to be lost or stolen. If you are finding yourself angry and afraid on a regular basis, I would ask you to interrogate your heart and say, what am I believing about God that's prompting me to be angry and afraid? To invite the Spirit of God to let go of those things because they're inappropriate in the heart of someone who has been loved so well by a God so good, and to receive the blessing that God is determined to give to you. God, we thank you that you are a God who has loved us well. We are thankful that there is joy in your presence because of your lavish mercy and grace toward us. We acknowledge that all too often we put up these barriers, these forms, these structures, these rules that are fueled by anger and fear and that rob us of joy. We ask that your spirit would show us the way to rejoice in your presence because in your presence is fullness of joy. We ask it because of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. 
Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.